Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Do you have some tissue handy in case you need it because of the tears that will roll down your face due to laughter? Okay. Why does Waldo always wear stripes? Because he doesn't want to be spotted. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from film and TV actress Judy Greer. Trust us, you've seen her in something before. That's right. And you'll be hearing more from her later. Plus, we'll speak with comedian Amy Schumer about the new season of her show on Comedy Central. Also coming up, documentarian Errol Morris on The Unknown Known, and we milk almonds. Magnifying glass not included. Detail work. So let's get started with some small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A massive earthquake rocks the coast of Chile. A late surge has pushed enrollment in Obamacare over the top. David Letterman leaving the late show. It's been great. You've been great. The network has been great. But I'm retiring. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with John Spong. He is a senior editor at Texas Monthly, the wonderful magazine. John Spong, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? Uh, Dateline, Baytown, Texas. 14-year-old Annie James walked out of her apartment building last week, noticed that there was a police car parked illegally in a fire lane in front of the building. And so she took it upon herself to write a ticket out uh, on what appears to have been Big Chief Notebook paper, ripped it off the pad and put it under the policeman's windshield wiper. And she was immediately arrested for harassing a police officer. I, know. I hope she wasn't. Was she tased? Is that the story? Uh, no, she she lucked out that way. That actually is uh, the cutest part of it. Uh, she asked for $10. The fee was $10. That was the fine she imposed. Uh, the police officer actually went and got her a gift card from Toys R Us for $20. Hmm. Toys R Us uh, matched it. And so now she has $40 to spend, I presumably on plastic guns or something. Like that. Yeah, I was going to say. A but in cop. Her, her mother's in plastic handcuffs for serving broccoli right now. <laughs> <laughs> no is, where does it end? Are we, do we want to encourage this kind of behavior? She's going to be like, you know, ticketing everybody now. The, the big concern is that she's going to grow a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be cool to have kids as police officers. Like, there wouldn't be a curfew, first of all. Yeah. Big be meanies over. would be sent to jail forever. Instead of badges, just SpongeBob stickers. <laughs> the world might be a better place. I think so. We're going to have to get mirrored sunglasses that fit a child's head. I'm most excited because I think it would be much easier to outrun the children than the cops have tried to outrun in the past. <laughs> All right. There's there's the Texas outlaw in you, John Spong. Yeah, we just learned a lot about you, John Spong. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the small talk, sir. Thanks, fellas. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. Yes, it's our barrel-aged history lesson with booze. Let's start with the history. This week, back in 1909, Arctic explorer Robert Peary became the first man to set foot on the North Pole. Or did he? Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Forget Ali versus Fraser. The biggest fight of the 20th century was Robert Peary versus Frederick Cook. They were both explorers, and they loved cold places. Cook claimed to be the first guy to summit Alaska's Mount McKinley, while Peary specialized in expeditions into the vast Arctic Circle. The two were friendly rivals until 1909. 
That's when Peary returned from an Arctic expedition and announced he and his crew had dog-sledded to the North Pole, the first men ever to get there. Only problem? Just weeks before, Cook had returned from a long Arctic expedition and announced he'd reached the Pole a year earlier. A public battle ensued. Newspapers polled readers about which man they believed. Peary's supporters painted Cook as a fraud, who not only hadn't reached the pole, but never summited McKinley either. Eventually, a congressional committee was convened to weigh the evidence. They named Peary first man to the pole. That's still what history books say. But is it the truth? Who knows? True. Cook's own crewmen later contradicted his polar claims, and turns out he did fib about the whole McKinley thing. But Peary's claims are suspect, too. In the 80s, several studies of his records concluded he'd missed the pole by miles. So maybe neither Cook nor Peary was first. In which case, the runners-up were probably a crew of 16 airmen back in 1926 who floated to the North Pole in a blimp. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to pair along with it. I'm joined by Bob Picorni. He is bartender at Lavelle's Bistro in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is pretty much as close as we can get to the Arctic Circle and still get a cocktail. Is that fair to say, Bob? I think that's probably true, yeah. Do you get a lot of explorers who are making their way even further north coming coming through your joint? Absolutely, we do, yeah. can always kind of tell they're pretty sunburned and grizzled. Yeah. You know, you can kind of pick them out of a crowd. And they're missing some fingers, maybe? Or... <laughs> yeah, quite likely. <laughs> so what's in your drink? So when you're thinking about these two guys, it's the first quarter of the 20th century, right? They're Americans, um, yeah. so it's got to be whiskey. That makes sense. But also, these guys, they're bitter, because I think neither of them really made it to the pole. So on top of that whiskey, you're going with Campari. Okay. Um, but you're, it's still not bitter enough, so you need two dashes of, of bitters, you know, maybe Angostura. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they thought they made it to the pole, so they're celebrating. So on top of that is a little bit of champagne. All right. Finally, and this, this is sort of silly, but we're doing it anyway, you blend it. This is a blended drink, All right. like Jimmy Buffett in a blender. So that's it. That's the Bitter Explorer. So the name, you're, you're sticking with the name, the Bitter Explorer. I'm doing it. Now I have I'm a question. It. So you're, you're a bartender in, in Fairbanks, Alaska. Do yeah. people order a lot of icy, slushy drinks? Because it seems to me more like a hot toddy culture. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Um, <laughs> it's not. I don't think I've served a hot drink all winter. Huh. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but uh, my girlfriend is a graduate student, and in fact, we talked about this last night. And she's a she's an anthropology student. She thought that these guys could never have made a hot drink anyway. There's oh, there's nothing growing, you know, above the Arctic Circle, so they wouldn't have been able to make a fire. So all incidentally, right. a frozen drink I think is quite appropriate. Wow, so that's that's verified by a scholar. This is the it most. Is. It totally is. This is a, a very special edition of History Lesson with Booze. <laughs> it is. So Rico, I don't have an anthropology degree. That's true. But I that is. But I seriously doubt that either explorer had a blender with them. <laughs> so I think there's a case to be made against blended drinks as well here. Yeah, the historically accurate version of that drink would have been whiskey. Yes. Period. The end. <laughs> Served in a little keg, <laughs> hang around the neck of a rescue dog, maybe. Nice. And probably delivered to the wrong table. Wasting away. 
All right, we've sipped some ice-cold cocktails, made some small talk, but a party isn't fully underway without some tunes to play. So here with some song suggestions is Adam Granducio, the man behind the band The War on Drugs. Mm-hmm. Their new album is called Lost in the Dream, and in it you'll find traces of Dylan and Springsteen, but it adds up to more than the sum of its parts. Here's a clip from the song Red Eyes. That's a taste of the band The War on Drugs. We asked Adam to list songs he would spin at his ideal party. Hey, this is uh, Adam Grinduciel from uh, The War on Drugs. Our new album is on Secretly Canadian. Well, I guess the first one would be uh, a song called A Pagan Place by The Water Boys. from uh, the Water Boys' second record, early 80s, 83, 84. When we played the UK recently, people were always comparing us to the Water Boys, and I'd heard a little bit of them years ago. It never really caught on, so over the course of the last couple months, I've been buying every Water Boys record when I see it. They invented the term, the big sound, and that was what they categorized as this record and the one after it. Just the production was really, really big, and I think a lot of bands around that time took a lot of cues from um, the way that the, those two Waterboys records sounded. Just a gorgeous song. So maybe that would be something. Definitely not for the end of the meal, because that's when you're... That, that's when you'd put on uh, this other song I'm going to say. A band called uh, Blues Control, and they have a couple records out. The one song that I always love by them is called Migration, and it's from Blues Control, Blues Control. And they're an uh, instrumental band. I don't know if they'd be, like, be called instrumental or or New Age would probably be what they would like to be called. I've taken a lot of cues from a lot of their stuff over the years. There's two people in the band, Leah, who plays piano, and then Russ plays like guitar and does all the cassette sampling, running everything through amps, but it's really pretty and really like lush and really thick. It's got like just a lot of, a lot of heart to it. At the end of the meal, this is what, this is what comes on and everyone kind of Let's the turkey sit in and just lean back on the couch and, you know, maybe have a cigarette or maybe uh, make some tea or some coffee. Let me see. Well, there's a song from Roxy Music called A 2HB, which um, Brian Ferry wrote for Humphrey Bogart. Death could not kill our 
Brian Ferry and Humphrey Bogart do have some uh, personality similarities. Or I think I think Brian Ferry looked up to Humphrey Bogart a lot for I think it's probably something to do with his class, you know, like his his just like general mystique. He's looking at you, kid. Celebrate He's looking at you, kid. This is probably the one actually at the end of the night when everyone's putting their coats on, you know, when you're helping your friends put their coats on. Right after uh you know, maybe forty five minutes after blues control. Everyone's finished, you know, finished their coffees and, and, you know, wiped the cake off their face. A dinner party soundtrack from the War on Drugs, another great Philadelphia export, by the way. Of course, and you don't have to be in Philly to catch them. They are on tour now. But please don't rush out to buy tickets before listening to the rest of the show, folks. Coming up, we learn how comic Amy Schumer responds to this sort of feedback from strangers. I just thought it was so mean that you had that guy's arms eaten off by owls. Everyone's a critic. You know. That and more when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, the exceedingly busy actor Judy Greer answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, author Michael Gibney turns cooking into beat poetry. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actress and comedian Amy Schumer. She writes, produces, and stars in the Comedy Central series Inside Amy Schumer. The show is a blend of sketches, man-on-the-street interviews, and earnest chats with people who work in seedy jobs. (laughs) The second season starts next week, but it's the title of her latest stand-up special that sums up her sense of humor. It's called Mostly Sex Stuff. (laughs) There you go. But in one of the new episodes of her show, I caught her referencing a prairie home companion. (laughs) So when we met, I asked her if, despite her raunchy comedy, she was secretly a tea-sipping public radio groupie. Is that how I got... To do this interview, because you were like, this is closet, possible intellectual. Possibly. Um, yeah, it, I, I would say absolutely. The stuff that slips out of me mm. is either like infantile, mm-hmm. just a deep-seated like Muppets reference, <laughs> uh-huh. or maybe maybe kind of a New York fancy pants thing. And those are all parts of me. I'm also, there is a part of me that is like kind of sorority girlish, drunk, promiscuous, mm-hmm. but there is also a part of me that loves like, just yeah, having some chamomile tea and reading—that's uh, it's all—it's all in there. When you started your stand-up, did you did you maybe have a wider palette of subjects you covered, and then you kind of tra- got more blue as you moved along? I think. Well, it's so funny because I truly don't think of myself as blue, and even you saying like raunchy and these words, I don't associate them with my brand of humor. But I know that that's crazy. I and wish I could. Here's how. Here's how great. I would give you examples, <laughs> but, you can't but even I can't pull even a clip. say them on the radio. I know, and I, you know, I, I, I've learned that this year with the premiere coming out, and last year because when it's like, oh, let's like Letterman needs a clip or whatever, yeah. and they're like, oh, what clip can they use? And we like could not find four. <laughs> seconds to show. But it really is just, I just feel like I'm being truthful and honest. You know what? We did find a clip I think we can use on the radio. Oh, (laughs) congratulations. This is me humming in the shower. How'd you guess? No, it's from a sketch from episode one where you play a totally oblivious and kind of callous woman named Amy Schumer. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I know her. Who gets an STD and desperately asks for God's help. And then God, played by the great actor Paul Giamatti, realizes he's bitten off more than he can chew with this woman. For me to undo your herpes, 
I have to create balance in the universe. You understand? Totally. Uh, I'd have to kill off an entire village in Uzbekistan. Yeah, whatever you think is best, do it. You'll also have to sacrifice something. Oh my God, name it. Okay, you need to stop drinking. Pass. Um, how about you just call your mother a little bit more often? That's an easy one. Mm, what is herpes exactly? It's an outbreak like once a year? Yeah. I don't know. I think I'll just take it. Okay, fine, fine. Herpes it is. So why label this very unflattering character Amy Schumer? That's so funny. Um, see, I think there's a lot of myself in this character. I think there's a lot of you have herpes. This character, I don't have herpes. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm living STD free, believe it or All not, right. That's for good now. To know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the show's hey, you're on tour right now. Yeah, sure, so yeah. we'll see what happens. Who knows? Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of I think truth in that character and I do it it is a combination of the worst things I could possibly think of and you know and and just highlighting people's behavior and that that shallowness now what I've learned from traveling because I'm on tour all the time and talking to people who've seen the show and they everyone experiences every moment of the show different yeah so the thing that stood out to you as the most uncomfortable would be nothing to someone else true but the like season one we did a parody of the show I Survived, mm-hmm. and it was um, Michael Showalter, and, uh, and his character's arms were eaten off by owls, and the other one wound up having to eat his own brother mm-hmm. because he was trapped on a boat. And then my character, my I Survived, was that I had to watch the movie Zookeeper on a plane. <laughs> like, that was the worst thing. But anyway, so I, I was hiking, and this, this Hasidic guy... Uh, around my age came up to me and was like he said I think your show is really funny but like how could you do that and I said what what like thinking any array of things and he said (laughs) I love the whole episode but I just thought it was so mean that you had that guy's arms eaten off by owls like don't you feel bad about that so and and I really realized in that moment uh, the things that really make people cringe people have different triggers but of course as a professional you know that sex and dismemberment and other shocking things provoke a reaction so that's kind of why you talk about them I mean comedians have done that from time immemorial jesters would do that you know talk about uncomfortable things yeah they just kind of like jump around Uh and try to not get murdered which (laughs) does have a lot in common with stand-up okay well we have a couple of standard questions we ask the guests on our show and the first one is what question are you tired of being asked in interviews if it's harder for women Mm -hmm. i guess in comedy if it's harder for women in comedy Mm -hmm. i'm I'm tired of being asked that Mm -hmm. it's it's some old stigma that i think is probably perpetuated just from journalists talking about gauging it. it. So that, maybe we're not doing any favors by continuing to talk about it. So how about well, it, in the count I of three, we'll do three backwards. <laughs> and then we won't talk about it, right? Three, two, one. one. Okay. Never Hi, again. How are All you? right. So our next question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can either be a personal fact about you. Okay. Or it can be an interesting fact about the, what you're standing up. Don't run oh, away. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just like okay. changing position. Okay. Have you ever seen a girl do that? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good thing you don't work blue. People would get the wrong idea. Uh, um, something that uh, something that no one knows. So, uh, I have a pretty bad scar on my leg. 
Okay. From a surfing accident. Okay. When Were I you was... surfing? Yes. Okay. Oh, that would be really unfortunate, yeah. right? No, a guy no. just mowed my legs over. <laughs> yeah, no one knows that. So, John. but you grew up in Long Island, correct? Yeah. So you were surfing. <laughs> on surfing Long in Long Beach on Long Island. Yeah, it's a really like embarrassing story because it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like oh, I was in Hawaii and you know, fifteen footers. I, it was like three three feet waves. I want to ask you a question. All right, do it. Um, when I just asked you if I could ask a question, yeah, what were you afraid I would ask? What did I think you were going to ask me? Yeah. I don't know. I figured it was going to be sexual. sexual. Yeah, sexual nature. Have we talked about sex since I've been in here? Um, we talked Very a little much? bit at the top. Right, right. I, and I, you know what? I, I do talk about it because because I don't remember anybody anybody talking about it when I was younger. Mm. And I do, I do feel like a, a sexual girl. But, I mean, I would say I have just as mundane a sex life as anybody. Anybody you know. I don't mm. think it's any more adventurous well, and interesting. You, should, you don't know. I don't know who you... Actually, this building, like, I bet there are <laughs> freaks walking around. Enrico, the answer is sort of. I'm sorry, did I ask a question? No, but you were wondering, is Amy Schumer related to the senator of New York, Chuck Schumer? Oh, yeah. very interesting. And it turns out Senator Schumer is Amy's father's first cousin. Weird. So they are first cousins, once removed, but she's never really spent time with him, and she doesn't know if he's familiar with her work. Yeah. And I have a feeling if he was familiar with her work, he would remove himself further. Yeah, more than once. <laughs> to eavesdrop. Chef Michael Gibney cut his chops in some of the most vaunted kitchens in New York City, including the venerable Tavern on the Green. He's now turned to writing about cooking. Today we overhear him read a heated passage from his debut book. Hello, my name is Michael Gibney, and I have a new book out called Sous Chef, 24 Hours on the Line. It's a book about professional cooking, one day in the life of the second in command. In the family of a restaurant, if chef were mom or dad and all the cooks were siblings, the sous chef would be the oldest sibling uh, who, who sort of takes charge of the pack when chef's not around. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. At this moment, we're in the throes of a Friday night service. It's gotten extremely busy. Food critics have shown up, and one of the cooks has just gone down, so the sous chef has to step in and take control of the situation. <laughs> Everything becomes one motion for just this very moment. We switch to autopilot. Finish one fish, move to the next. Start with a hot pan, start with hot oil. If it's not hot, wait. Don't start early, it'll stick. Check the oven instead. There's something in there. It needs to be flipped. Out it comes, in goes the butter, let it bubble. Crush the garlic, arose, flip, arose again. Put a new pan down. Season the bass, always from a height. The bass goes in, three chars go down, the skin souffle, press them to the heat, hear the crackle. The pan is too hot, the oil smells scorched, start again. Burner at full tilt, now for the mussels. They jump in the oil, aromas flourish. Here's a bronzino, first of the night. Score its skin, into the griswold, its eyeball pops. Flip it over, into the oven. On with more gambas, on with more pans, on with more burners. Scrape down the plancha, wipe down the piano, towel your brow. Printer's buzz, a new pick, six more fish. Your legs are tired, tickets blur. Chef needs more. Next up, cooks moan. We chef. Fat splutters, timers chime, food goes, tickets are stabbed. New ones are plucked up. 
Organize the board, start again. Eight fish now, a pan to each, eight butters, eight garlics, eight flips, eight arrosés, eight plates, eight more picks. Machine gun frequency, clean pans from Kiko. They're getting heavy, they drop on the flat top like a bullet blast. Your arms are stiff, the bronzino is done. Swing open the oven, the heat blazes, dries your eyes, blink it out. Grab up the Griswold, bring home the door. The towel is wet, the pan burns your hand. Dizziness, nausea, synesthesia, pain. This is normal. This is what we do. We're in this together. We're almost there. An hour vanishes before you snap back into consciousness and realize that all this time you've been operating entirely on instinct. The thought is jarring. You emerge disoriented, knees buckling like a newborn foals. It's a moment before you can figure out what has brought you back to life. And then it hits you. You've just sent out the last piece of fish you had cooking. There's some tickets on the board, but nothing has fired yet. There's nothing working. You're finally caught up. The station is messy. You take this opportunity to do a clean sweep of it. You look around the kitchen. Everybody's red-faced and sweaty, but they too are tidying their stations. They're folding their towels, changing their spoon water, surveying their mise en place. They slug seltzer from quart containers, belch, and stretch. They made it through the push, and so have you. Just then, you remember that you have half a cigarette that you clipped earlier on before service started. You extract the soggy packet from your pocket. The cardboard is frayed, the cigarette's bent out of shape. You pluck up the clip with a fishy pair of fingernails. Offline, you say, and make your way past Warren toward the loading dock. Chef winks at you as you pass him. You smile and raise an eyebrow. Out back, you kick the door open and light up your smoke. Chef-turned author Michael Gibney. His new book is called Sous Chef, 24 Hours on the Line. And you are listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, the last few years, we have, of course, seen food people getting really focused on coffee. Yes. The so-called third wave roasters and baristas, they obsessively perfect every detail of flavor and presentation. Basically acting like they've had too much coffee. It's Go figure. (laughs) Yeah. But meanwhile, what about the milk that goes in the coffee? Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. That's right. (laughs) This week, the food blog Grub Street listed great cafes that serve great milk with their great coffee, one being Squirrel in Los Angeles, which even makes its own almond milk. I met with their manager and coffee trainer, Colleen King, and first off, I asked her, what makes milk so great in coffee? I mean, I think that it's just the lactose and the fattiness. You know, there was a big trend with skim milk for a long time, but there's now a trend with whole and the fattier milk, the better. And it's just that it complements that bitterness. All right. So what is the optimal? Let's start with dairy milk. What would be the optimal dairy milk to have with coffee? If you ask me, I want the, the fattier, the better. When I worked in Chicago, I used a 5% milk, and I thought that was a lot of fat. But here, we use um, Strauss barista milk, which actually has 12%. It's actually called barista milk? They make it specifically for baristas? Yeah, they're, they're very good at branding. <laughs> 12%. 12% fat. And that's our only option other than almond milk. I mean, that's still less than cream, but it's kind of like pouring a very lean steak into your coffee. 
I guess it's as much about creating a rich texture as it is flavor at that point, though, right? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, you want the fat to complement the acid, and I mean that's why you add milk in the first place. When you drink a, if you drink a skim milk latte, the texture is completely different. It almost tastes like you're drinking something that's watered down. All right, so let's turn then to almond milk. First of all, I should tell you I'm really happy to be talking to you about almond milk because I'm lactose intolerant. Perfect. I would not be able to try your other milks unless I was willing to sacrifice internal organs to the experiment. So what is almond milk? It seems to me like you would get oil out of an almond. Um, so the process that we use is we use blanched almonds and then we soak them from 2 to 12 hours. If you want it to be really rich, 12 hours. If you just want to get it done, you can do it for 2 hours. But you're basically soaking almonds, and so it's kind of like almond water. And then you blend the almonds with the water, and then it's strained through cheesecloth or muslin, and that's when you get the almond milk. And the straining's obviously to get the chunkiness out of it. Correct. But it's still mainly infused water, and you just said you don't want to add anything to water down coffee. Uh, I mean, the almond milk still has a higher fat content than skim, because the goal of skim is to have pretty much zero fat. I see. So you've still got something in there. Exactly. Plus, I can drink it. That's the main reason. That's the goal. Um... It occurs to me, though, there's been a lot of talk about different roasts creating very different flavors of coffee. You know, now you can approach coffee almost like wine. Does that mean that you could have a different milk for every type of roast? Yeah, I think that that's already happening. You know, when you go to a diner, they serve you really dark coffee, like a dark roast, and it's acceptable, you know, even for myself to just grab some heavy cream and just put it in there, and it's great. But, I mean, lots of cafes, including ourselves, were only offering whole milk because we're serving a lot lighter coffee. So when I source coffees, I want them to be light and floral and balanced. So if I offered that heavy cream that I'm putting in my coffee at diners, then it would completely overpower it. It would be all cream and no coffee. Exactly. But then it becomes like, how complicated can our cup of joe become? Like, are we going to get to the point where we're going to have different types of wood stir for each roast of Colombian or something like that? Well, I think the goal for the coffee community is not even to have to add milk. But I mean, I wouldn't put it past someone to take it to that extent. So uh, it's ironic that you guys seem to be going further than many to create creams to put into your coffee, but you personally would sort of have a goal of eliminating cream forever from the vernacular. Well, I think that it's enjoyable. Um, I think that before we would buy specific woods to stir the cream into, we would eliminate the cream, I suppose. All right. So this is as far as it goes. No, no further complication. I cannot promise anything. <laughs> I want to try this stuff. Can we go next door and try it? Yeah, let's go. So we're here in the cafe itself, and first of all, we're standing in front of uh, your refrigerator unit, and we're looking at some of the milk. The, the barista milk that you mentioned earlier is indeed 12% fat. That is, for the record, 25% saturated fat you're putting in. We're going to fill you up. Um, and now, in your other hand, you've got the almond milk, which is especially creamy looking. I must say, I'm used to almond milk seeming very thin, and you're like shaking this around in the jar, and it's really thick looking. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons we love it is because it's, it's a really great texture. All right. So I have asked for a cappuccino, just a straight up cappuccino with some of the almond milk in it. I would love to taste the barista's steak milk, but it will destroy me. So here we go. I'm going to take one sip of this. Lovely. It's, it is much creamier than I'm used to. Is this steamed at all, or is it just poured straight in? Steamed. I mean, I can have you try it cold. It's pretty similar, but when you heat up milk of any kind, you know you're activating those sugars. So it actually makes it sweeter when you steam it? I'm not sure if it actually makes it sweeter, but it's definitely the perception of sweetness. When you have an iced latte, even with regular milk, it doesn't taste as sweet as if you steam it and have the exact same portions. This is delicious. 
But what do you think is the most important element for coffee? Definitely the water. The water, not the beans. Um, I mean the beans, but coffee is 97% water. If you have really good coffee and you take the water, the great water out of the equation and give bad water, the coffee will never be good. And so I guess that's really the element. But only when you're making the coffee, not after it's done. No skim milk. Not if I'm drinking it. Colleen King of the excellent L.A. restaurant and cafe Squirrel, which, by the way, is spelled S-Q-I-R-L, not to be confused with filmmaker Jim Jarmusch's band Squirrel, which is S-Q-U-Umlaut, R-L. Next week, we report on the misspelling squirrel trend. (laughs) But coming up, we're going to get your etiquette questions answered by perennial on-screen pal Judy Greer. All right. And Oscar-winning filmmaker Earl Morris asked this existential question. Where the hell is the dollar that should have been mine? That and more when the Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we will spin you a classic track from 60s Brit band The Marmalade. And coming up, we interview acclaimed documentary director Errol Morris. It's one of the most puzzling, frustrating interviews I have ever done. We should probably point out he's talking about his interview with Donald Rumsfeld, not our interview of him. Yeah, otherwise that would have been very rude of Errol. Speaking of which, it is time for a weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Judy Greer. She won wide acclaim for her role as the wife of a philanderer in the Oscar-winning movie The Descendants, but you've almost certainly seen her in one of her many, many, many character roles in movies (laughs) and on TV shows like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and How I Met Your Mother. She also appeared in 10 episodes of Arrested Development, playing the character oh. Kitty Sanchez. Do you remember that? Judy, you've been in yeah. so much stuff, you don't even remember what you've been in. <laughs> well, I just know you. it was 10. I've never counted them before. That's what Wikipedia says. <laughs> Judy just checks IMDb to see where she was last week. Um, we're happy you're here this week, and you're here because you Thank wrote a you. memoir. It's called I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. It comes out this week. And Judy, welcome. Thank you. As the title suggests, you've been in a ton of these TV shows and movies, so you get a lot of puzzled looks of semi-recognition. Yes. What is the most surprising place a stranger thought they knew you from? Um, Lake of the Ozarks, I think was called. (laughs) A woman, a very old woman, like very old, who needed help off of the airplane. We were like walking down the jetway together she was like do you live in lake of the ozarks and uh the answer is no i don't your book is the subtitle is confessions of a co-star and there's a common wisdom in hollywood that it's better to be a character actor and co-star because you have a wider range of roles available and and a longer career than a headlining star yeah i mean to what extent would you even want to be a marquee star at this point i mean I, I hear they get paid tons of money, so that seems awesome. <laughs> that is not like, yeah. if Money's not so great. Trust us. <laughs> Trust these guys. I mean, it's, it seems awesome to have a bunch of money, but like whatever. I'm into art too. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it'd be. I think it'd be fun to star in things because I think a lot of times the starring roles are cooler. Yeah, and also there's not like a Hollywood co-star walk of fame. You know I, what I mean? I don't know. Like, I where don't... you where you put your foot on what? Mud oh path. <laughs> what if you Hills. sat your bare bum 
in the like the co-star walk of fame was an imprint of your bare bum <laughs> that like would, instead of <laughs> people would sprain their ankles all the time and <laughs> there would be true. lawsuits okay that's the worst idea <laughs> yeah i have to say though i disagree with the idea that co-starring roles are not as fun as starring roles i dressed up as han solo not as luke skywalker when i was a kid yeah that's a bad one for me because i never saw that movie <laughs> what yeah. i know all right we're going to talk know, about that I later know, Let's uh, get to our questions, shall we? Yes. This is from Gail in Los Angeles. Hi, Gail. Gail writes, if you are in an elevator with a famous person, someone whose work you like, like maybe Judy Greer, do you nod, Mm -hmm. make small talk, or ignore them? I feel like something about the tight space makes it awkward. I guess it's that both parties can't escape one another for a few seconds. She's right about that. Yes. Um, Mm. I have an answer for this. That's convenient. Okay, good. Um, I like it personally, and I think other actors would too, or performers or whoever you're in the elevator with. If when the door opens, you say it then quickly. I really enjoy your work. When the escape hatch is available. Yes, yes. Because it's always nice to get a compliment that's simple and straightforward. And again, like Gail said, you don't have to sit in the elevator for three awkward minutes making weird small talk. <laughs> Thanks. Unless you wrote a screenplay, in which case you should definitely tell that person <laughs> the plot of your screenplay. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you say you enjoy it because, you know, the other option here would be to say nothing and let that person get on with their day without being harassed. I think you're right that that that's a good option if you're really that nervous about it. But I think in general people... People like to be complimented, especially actors. I mean, we like it. You have egos? That's crazy. I know. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) All right. Our next question comes from Robin in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Robin writes, what do you do when a friend out of the blue offers to take you to dinner to celebrate your birthday, then at the last minute announces, quote, Dave will be joining us? When I asked who Dave was, she said, oh, my new boyfriend of three weeks. Um, I think that you enjoy the fact that you're getting a free dinner and <laughs> tell Robin about it uh, maybe a week later. Really? But it sounds like Robin just wanted one-on-one time with her friend on her birthday. She didn't. Does she have to be subjected to the stranger? Well, I have so many more questions for Robin, like, to really give a good answer to this question. Like, are there more people at this dinner or is it just her and Robin? And, like, why not meet someone that your friend is dating for three weeks? You know, you're going to have to meet him eventually. And as long as you're still getting your dinner paid for, I don't totally understand what the big yeah. deal is. The bottom line is the dinner. You're really into this dinner. I'm into a free meal. You could also ask her. Robin could ask the friend to meet before dinner for a drink, just the two of you. And then Dave could meet you at the restaurant for dinner after if it's so important. (laughs) At a really small place with only two seats. Perfect. So there's a middle path for you, Robin. Uh, This is from Kate in Maui, Hawaii, speaking to somebody who was in The Descendants set in Hawaii. Uh, My fiance and I, writes Kate, recently went to a very nice restaurant and had a lovely dinner. The giant blotch on the evening was a glaring spelling error on this otherwise nice restaurant's (laughs) menu. (laughs) Namely, it advertised pieces of bruschetta, P-E-I-C-E-S. When and how is it appropriate to point it out to the establishment in question? Oh, man. Kate is obviously a public radio listener. Absolutely. Sounds like one of ours. Kate is seems maybe a little high strung. Um, I'm curious about how her relationship is going. If she's oh no. at a fancy dinner with her fiance, and this is is practically ruining her meal. <laughs> Poor Kate. But I get it because one time I was standing in line at the coffee bean and tea leaf, and they'd spelled Columbia C O L U M B I A when referring different. to coffee, and I was like, guys, you spelled it wrong. And they were <laughs> like, like, huh? I'm like, Columbia's with an O. Look at the bag of coffee you're holding. 
in your hand right now. And the guy's like, no, that's where I went to school. Yeah. <laughs> Showing it well, off the only way I know how. Eek. But I think the way to handle this is to simply call the restaurant the next day and ask to speak to the manager and uh, point it out to them because probably they didn't even notice. There you go. Yeah. I mean, this is really going to be a blotch yes. on your... I mean, I'm I think sh- Kate's hyperbolic about yeah, this. Yeah, I can't imagine. How do you spell hyperbolic? Oh, We're going to have to... That's an etiquette question that'll have to wait for another time. Judy Greer, <laughs> thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Judy Greer, her new memoir is called I Don't Know What You Know Me From, Confessions of a Co-Star. And you can hear her voice on the hit animated show Archer. Later this year, she'll appear alongside Andy Serkis in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and the list is impressive and just very long. Yeah, she may well be co-starring in your child's production of Billy Goat Gruff. (laughs) Keep your eyes peeled. I will. And folks... If you want to co-star in our etiquette segment, well done. Send your questions to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Errol Morris is one of the most respected documentarians working today. He directed the film version of Stephen Hawking's science classic, A Brief History of Time, He solved the case of a man unjustly accused of murder in The Thin Blue Line. And he won the Best Documentary Oscar for The Fog of War. His new film is called The Unknown Known, in which he extensively interviews former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. And Errol, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me here. So this is your second film, exploring the thoughts and the decisions of a Secretary of Defense during wartime. The first was Robert McNamara for The Fog of War, who, of course, served during the Vietnam War. Now Donald Rumsfeld. What about these people in in that position? What is so interesting to you about it? Endlessly fascinating. Two men as different as two men could possibly be, and yet they both presided over disastrous policies. People will endlessly argue about this, but for me, Iraq and Vietnam are disasters. But why the secretaries of defense, for instance, why not talk to, say, George W. Bush or any other cabinet member? Because for both Vietnam and Iraq, the secretaries of defense were the front men. They were the men selling the policies to the American people. So much so that uh, the Vietnam War is often thought of not as Lyndon Johnson's war, but as Robert S. McNamara's war. Mm-hmm. Forty years later, Donald Rumsfeld is the front man for the war. The press conferences, the endless public appearances. When I think of Iraq, I think of Donald Rumsfeld. Do you like him? Because it's interesting. There is a, there's a sequence in this where you talk, you go into his backstory. He talks about his wife. I I found myself liking him. I did some research on him. He was a a major sponsor as a congressman of the Freedom of Information Act, which is something I'll bet you appreciate as a journalist, as as do I. Yes. Do you you like the guy? I do like him. And I should never forget how unbelievably cooperative Donald Rumsfeld was in the making of this movie. Uh, He came up to Boston multiple times, gave me tens of hours worth of interviews. He was unfailingly gracious. And yet I'm left with a feeling of deep unease. There's something missing. Which is? After I made The Fog of War, I was repeatedly asked, is McNamara, is he sorry? 
Well, the whole movie is about McNamara's guilt. <laughs> yeah. McNamara reckoning with that history that he was so much part of. At the heart of the unknown known is something really different. It's a man avoiding the history that he was so much part of, refusing to reckon with it or not even clearly seeing it at all. Yeah, there's actually a, a really interesting moment where you ask him about how in the public's mind Saddam Hussein and Iraq became conflated with al-Qaeda and 9-11, although it's conclusively true that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. And you ask him, how did that happen? He says, the White House never had anything to do with that. And I never heard of that being the case. And then you cut to him in a press conference, very clearly making that case that there is a connection between the two. What are you thinking in the moment that this obvious falsehood is dropped in your lap? What do you think he was thinking? That's at the very heart of the movie that I made. What is he thinking? Do you think is, that was on purpose? There are endless moments in this movie where I wondered, sincere, insincere, self-deceived, or lying. It's one of the most puzzling, frustrating interviews I have ever done. Really? And I've done a fair a number I've done a fair number of them over the years. But I am sure of one thing that in the end he just lost contact with reality. Although I do I should point out the last time we spoke, I asked you a question that we ask all of our guests, which is to tell us something we don't know. And you said yourself that when it comes down to it, you can't really know yourself. You ask yourself questions, and it seems like you should be getting legitimate responses back, and yet you can't really trust them. Well, you think, you know, my brain is sitting inside of my head. I should have some kind <laughs> yeah. of special access to it, but it's not clear. So, but what I'm saying is, why does it surprise you so much that Rumsfeld perhaps doesn't maybe see his own internal contradictions? Well, I see internal contradictions all over the place in my own case. But for better or for worse, I'm always aware on some level of what I'm saying and how it will be viewed by others. I worry about it. Uh, very early on in my interview with Donald Rumsfeld, he's talking about Saddam Hussein. He visited Saddam in 1983. And he describes him as a man who is worshipped by all of the people around him. People kowtow to him. Uh, the end result, in Rumsfeld's word, he becomes a man who is all pretend. And when he said this, I kept wondering, he's talking about Saddam Hussein, but doesn't he worry that people might think he's talking about Donald Rumsfeld? And the answer is no, not really. I would say that, you know, all documentaries on some level are a search for the truth about something. You know, you're trying to represent something correctly. They should be. Sure. And I know that you believe strongly that there is an objective truth out there on any given subject. But your movies often are about how difficult the truth is to uncover, how it's often obscured. And I'm wondering why that's such an important theme to you. Well, I tell a story at the beginning of my book, Believing is Seeing. My father died when I was two years old. I have no memories of him at all. Hmm. All around the house were pictures of my father. And I always wondered, who is this man? Without ever really being able to answer the question, all kinds of conflicting accounts from my hmm. aunts and my uncles and my mother. 
but the feeling of an enduring mystery that I simply could not answer. Um, There's another story that I think about often. It involved a kid who lived around the corner. Maybe I was 10, 11 years old. I had been obsessed with maps, looking at maps, studying maps. And my brother had told me this question you're supposed to ask people, which is further west, Los Angeles or Reno, Nevada? And people invariably think it's Los Angeles. So I bet this kid around the corner a buck that Reno, Nevada was further west than Los Angeles. And he took the bet, and I had to get the atlas out and show him clearly, you're wrong. You know, there's a fact of the matter here. Reno is further west than Los Angeles. I'm sorry. (laughs) And he started arguing with me. He said, well, lines of longitude don't cross the water. This map is distorted. And he would never give me the dollar. Then the rest of your career has been looking for that dollar. The rest of my career most certainly has been looking for that dollar. Where the hell is the dollar that should have been mine? Morris, his new documentary about Donald Rumsfeld is called The Unknown Known. And Brendan, did you know Reno was further west than L.A.? I didn't know. I did, but it does make you think about the nature of the truth, right? Like, who makes maps? Why do we trust that they're not just, you know, making stuff up? How do we know? (laughs) It's true. Maps say there's a town in New Jersey called Cheesequake. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'll I'll believe it when I go there. All right, and that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin is our digital maven. Our interns are James Delahousie and Esther Mania. Engineering assistance this week came from Chris Clark and Jeff Peters. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Thanks, as always, to our friends at the public radio show Marketplace. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. This week, Iad Karkudli, a well-loved L.A. club DJ and a very special guy, passed away. He was known for spinning rarely heard Britpop gems, so here's one of them to send him on his way. From 1967, it's The Marmalade with I See the Rain. Bon appétit. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening. Hey, who's that? Uh, I'm sorry? What? The woman behind the control board. She looks familiar. That's Judy Greer. She's our new engineer. Oh, yeah. She's great. <laughs>